after the letters of Titus and Timothy and Thessalonians and Philemon, and I didn't say them in order, Hebrews. And, uh, you know, it is a new year. It is an election year. It's time for me to amount, announce the, the candidate that I'm putting all my support behind. Uh, as you know, I'm very political. And, uh, and as you know, it's controversial, but I think it should be done this year. So here we go. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and then I'll explain who, why I've chosen the candidate I've chosen. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged or cleansed our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So my candidate, should be obvious to you, is none other than Jesus the Messiah. And it doesn't mean that I don't think you can support individuals that you believe have a, uh, a kinship with your thoughts and your view of the country. Of course, I'm not mocking that. I'm just saying, could you pick someone better? You know, the messenger and the message are often two different things. Humanly, all of us, and I include myself completely in this, we, you know, some of you don't speak outwardly very much, and you're much more quiet, and even a fool, when he keeps his mouth shut, is thought to be wise, the Bible says, so we all think you're really smart, but we don't really know. (laughs) Some of us, it's hard to get us to shut up. Some of us speak honestly and with as much integrity as we know how. But, you know, we're all prone to speak more than we live. I mean, what if you lived up to everything you said? Completely. Everything you believed. Well, I believe, blah, blah. What if you lived up to it 100%? Sadly, and thankfully, excuse me, what if you lived down to everything you said? (laughs) I don't think we do either, on that side either. But we're not perfectly, our words and our hearts are not always perfectly matched, not always in total unity. Most of us, when we speak, can speak at a higher level of commitment and passion and purpose and direction and thought than we live out. I mean, do you ever break your own laws, your own rules on your own life, your own beliefs? Do you ever go against your own conscience? Have you ever done this? Like, who hasn't? But Jesus is the messenger from heaven, and he is the message. It's all embodied in him. He's in perfect unity. He never says anything that isn't totally in tune with the Father. His heart and the Father's heart are one. He is the creator, and he is the heir. He's the exact total representation of the Father, and the only one powerful enough or who is loving enough to wash away our sins. You might say, well, I'm loving enough to watch. If I had the capacity to forgive sins, and I do forgive people, and I, you know, you don't really know. You're not hanging on a cross saying, Father, forgive them. A little different. So, the one who's powerful enough and has enough passion enough to wash away our sins, the one who rightly sits at the right hand of the Father, continuously interceding for us, I vote for him. How about you? I vote for Jesus every time to be my Lord to rule my life, because though I don't live up to it, it is my goal to follow him. And in Hebrews is a book that is written to people who started well on their Christian journey. I'm not asking you to raise your hands or expose yourself. How many of you started well, and then something happened? You know, that your story is unique to you. You have certain things in your life, and I understand that they're, all, they're important. Each person's journey is important. But somehow, every person's journey, and many people's journey at least, to a great degree, has started well, something happened. Started well, something happened. (laughs) That was a cricket that just... So, 
you know, these people started well, but now they're Jewish believers. They're not necessarily the believers in Jerusalem who've already been through the persecution and chased out. It can be around the, the, uh, the Roman Empire. And as Caesars are raising up and starting to persecute the church more and more, and the church has been raising up because of God's grace and churches are being planted, there's a, a large portion of Jewish believers who are beginning to waver in their faith. They're being tempted by the way, is temptation a sin? Is being tempted a sin? It's not a sin to be tempted or Jesus sinned because he went into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So being tempted isn't a sin. What is a sin? Giving in to temptation. So they're tempted to go back to the norm, back to the norm of family life the way it was before they became a Christian, back to the norm of the culture they lived in, that wasn't, uh, isn't very excited about Jesus. Uh, back to the norm of the religion they were in, Judaism. Just do the ceremonies, go to, you know, do the high holidays, do the stuff, and just keep Jesus to yourself. Just look, just zip it, and just quietly believe in Jesus. But don't you dare let it affect how you relate to other people or your decision-making or what you want to see happen in your culture. Leave that to the rest of us. We get to do that, but not you, Christians. <laughs> and that pressure on them, because they would get hammered for it uh, big time, was starting to build. Trouble and rejection were brewing. Maybe they ought to not be so intense. Maybe they ought to just turn it down a few notches, not be so extreme, so devoted, so straightforward about their faith. Maybe they ought to just pack it up in a closet. And that was the pressure that was on them. Just believe in Jesus quietly. Don't make waves. And just go along with the religious activity that is acceptable to your culture. Don't You know, we have this fear. You've heard me if you've been here. You've heard me say it before. We have this great fear about becoming a fanatic. Because there are fanatics, right? There are certainly fanatical Islamic terrorists, jihadists. There are certainly fanatical um, so-called Christians that can do crazy things. There are people who are, there are, so fanat there are fanatics about their football team, their soccer team. Well, they call it football there. But in Europe, you know, they have stampedes in stadiums and people get killed sometimes, you know. They're so passionate about their team. But we're, we don't stop playing soccer here because they go crazy. It's interesting, and everybody's fearful about being a fanatic. So, how many of you are in danger of becoming a fanatic here for Jesus? Like you're just going out to deep on deep, deep end. My friends, we're far more in danger of becoming lukewarm, of zipping it and being silent and going into a closet than we're in danger of becoming fanatics. How many people do you know that are fanatics, and how many people you know that hardly will open up about their faith and are fearful to speak about it or, or are unwilling to stand on their faith on the Word of God. There's way, way more people who are unwilling to make a stand for Jesus. And so I'm not worried about turning people into fanatics because I just don't see that happening. I don't. I don't see me doing that. No offense to most of you. I don't see you doing it either. I don't know that we're supposed to in that sense, but... Forget about that. Worry about that. That's not your problem, <laughs> if I may be so bold. That's not your problem. You're, you're becoming really fanatical. Maybe one or two of you might be. And, but this, my friend Bob Claycamp, he wrote a song that I've actually sang with somebody here. Probably had a girl sing it so, who could, so you could actually listen to it and enjoyably. But uh, his words in part of the song were, it is commonly known among those in this world, religion is a great institution. An hour a week will keep you in line. Any more just leads to confusion. <laughs> that's, that's the view. You, you, go ahead. Go to your little church building. Have your little church. But don't bring it outside of there. You're going to be a fanatic and crazy. Keep it all in that neat little box and we won't bother you. The song goes on, but my friends, we are called to a much higher calling. It reaches beyond every door. 
It goes out to the byways and into the highways. Love that compels us to more. Do you know, there's a verse that I should have put on the bulletin that wouldn't be so jarring to you, but I want to tell you it's equally powerful. And that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13, verse 14 and 15. I'll just read it to you unless you want to rush there. But 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, listen carefully. For the love of Christ compels us, tugs at our hearts, pulls on us, because we judge this, that if one died for all, then all died or were dead. And that he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. It's really very simple. I didn't say easy. It's really very simple. If Jesus died for you, you were dead. Dead in sin. Fine. Hopeless. Over. Dead. And that he died for you, that we who live should no longer live for ourselves since we were dead, but live for him who died for us and rose again. The love of Christ, not some burden from a pastor or from a book of uh, rules, but the lo- if you understand his love, you kind of, and you understand, and also logic would tell you if he's truly God and he died for your sins, then you were dead. And if you were dead and now you're alive because of Jesus, then it's only reasonable. It's not an extreme that you and I would live for him. Is it? Is that an extreme view to live for Jesus? In, act- in actuality, it's like ridiculousness to think, Jesus died for me so that I could live a happy American dream and give him an hour a week or whatever. And I, this isn't about getting you to come to more events or anything or pay more, give more money or anything. This is about understanding the concept here about the supremacy of Jesus over everything. Because in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews takes these people and says, you know, you can't go backwards. Do you really want to go backwards? Let, let me ask you guys this. So... In the last five years, did anybody get a different car from the the car they had five years ago? Did you go out and say, I'm going to go car shopping. What do you want? Well, I want something in worse condition than the car I'm getting rid of. I want an older, junkier, more ruined, oil-leaking car. If that's you, I got some help for you. I can help you out. Come to my car lot. It's huge. Uh, at least the puddle under the... No, I, my cars are fine. But uh, you don't do that, do you? Is there anybody here that says, 2016, what, what's your financial hope? Well, I'm hoping I make a lot less money this year. Is there anybody here that wants to make less money this year? You could just give us some of yours, the rest of us who don't want to do that. Now, you might want to pay less taxes and, you know... I want less this year. I want to make less. Um, What's your plans for the year? Well, last year I had some really great vacations. I'm hoping to have no great vacations. Should I go through the list of everything in life that you, in everything in life, you want more. You want better. You want to move forward. Do you want to move backward? Everything in life that matters to you, that you care about, you want to move forward. So the question is, how about with Jesus? Do we want to move forward? Or do we want to go backward? And that's what he's asking these guys. Do you understand that when you get tempted, you're being tempted to go backward? All right? So chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we're going to do a few verses in three chapters. And one of, the next one is chapter 2, 1 through 4. Says, uh, oh, naturally I moved right out of that section of Hebrews. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. That means exactly what it sounds like. Have you ever been in a little boat out on the ocean or in an inner tube or a surfboard? or body surfing, or just playing out there in the water, and you're out there floating around, and you have this marker. You know, it's the, it's the hotel you were staying at. 
It's the lifeguard station. It's it's your grandma. Don't go out that far. And you you know you can hear her for miles. But uh, it's wh- whoever it is. You're, you got this view, and you go okay. And you start going this way. If the beach is over here, usually you're going. Well, wait a minute. We're in the East Coast now. I haven't been to the. I haven't floated in the ocean, Atlantic Ocean too much. But in the in the Pacific, when I was on the West Coast, you're going. To, the current's going south. Okay, so here it's the other way. But it's going south, and you're moving away. I'm sure it's going that way. Then you're moving away from that spot. You don't have to paddle your way. You don't have to swim real hard to get to drift. All you got to do is stop trying to stay where you are or move in the right direction. You'll go the other way naturally. Are you with me? You'll drift. We ought to take, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard lest we drift away. So, okay, so for me, I'll use myself because I'm sitting here. <laughs> 44 years I've been a Christian. Probably read the Bible as much, as much as most of you in this room. There's probably a few that are ahead of me in whatever that means ahead in terms of how much you've read the Bible. But I probably read it about, you know, quite a bit. I don't say, I better not say, you know, Thanks, I already read the Bible. I've read it quite a bit, actually. <laughs> ask, me, ask me a verse. Ask me a verse. I'll tell you where it is, which actually I'm pretty good at. The, the Bible doesn't tell me that I don't need to listen as carefully as I used to listen. The Bible tells me that I need to listen more carefully than I used to listen. How about that? So if that's true for me, how's that for you? Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves that was Moses got the law through the angels, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So, these guys experience, this, uh, these, these Hebrews are being told that you have an even greater salvation now through Jesus than what your brethren had when they came out of Egypt into the wilderness, which was miraculous, wasn't it? In fact, I'm going to read to you just real quick. I don't usually turn to so many verses, but I need to do this for your benefit. And you don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 when they're getting ready to go into the land after 40 years, they were supposed to go in after, you know, 20 months, but they said no, and then God said, okay, 40 years. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. He goes, and you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness, listen, to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandment or not. So he humbled you, And allowed you to hunger. He allowed you to hunger. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell for 40 years. There's more but I'll stop there for the sake of time. Remember the Lord. God was searching their hearts. How did he search their hearts out? He allowed them to be hungry. Not starving. Hungry. And when they got hungry and they cried out, then he brought them manna, and he let them be hungry and have a need so they would learn to trust in him. He allowed them to go through temptation to show them their need for him. So hunger came, but so did manna. And nobody else in the whole history of the earth or beyond ever experienced that. Only these guys who he allowed to hunger experienced waking up in the morning with these wafers on the ground. You know, them and, of course, your dog. (laughs) finds things on the ground. But amazing, they found good, wonderful food to eat. Oh, sure, it wasn't steak and eggs, but it was miraculous provision. Nobody else had this miracle. Ladies, you might be really bummed by this, if you were an Israelite lady. It says your clothes didn't wear out 40 years. 
that means that they wore the same clothes. You know, it wasn't like, oh, honey, as they're around, you know, cooking and visiting. Where did you get that little dress? You know, oh, I just picked it up at, you know, Abe's. No. <laughs> if you had two items of clothing in those days, if you had two sets of clothing, you were doing really, really well. You come from a slave out of Egypt, even though they brought some riches of Egypt. I don't think it was wardrobes. So, ladies, there was no shopping. They couldn't say to their husbands, honey, this thing's really getting old. I, you know, we have that event coming up. What's the event? You know, Sabbath. Well, it comes up every week. Well, this is a special Sabbath. Yeah, well. You know, that dress is that, that outfit's going to have to be fine, isn't it? And it never wore out. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't get swollen. Have you ever walked a long hike out in the heat in bad shoes? Yeah, have you ever just went to the mall in bad shoes or something? So God blessed and protected them. They had manna. They had water come out of a rock. They had quail fly at, at the level where they could bat them down to the ground. Um, they played baseball. Each one got a homer. And uh, a fire in the cloud, fire by night, a cloud by day to cover them. Victory in battles that they didn't really win on their own. And yet they cried and complained, You brought us out here to die! And they yelled at Moses. And they yelled at Moses, and they kind of cursed at Moses, and they vented on Moses. And my friends, they weren't really angry at Moses. They were doing bank shots. <laughs> they wanted to get the ball over here, which is God. So to get that one, they couldn't just go right at it. They had to bank to go to it. So Moses was the bank shot. I'm an old pool player from way back. <laughs> it's a bank shot. It was a deflection. They couldn't yell. They knew, they well, we better not just yell at God. So we'll yell at the person that speaks. Moses never told them anything except the one time he did, he got busted for it big. He uh, never told them anything that wasn't what God told him to tell. He didn't do anything, and he did miracles in front of them. God used them to lead them, and they complained to Moses, you brought us out here to die. God brought us out. Would to God we had died in Egypt if only we had just stayed in Egypt. This deal is not turning out the way we thought it would. This Christian deal, this God thing is not turning out like we were told. And you know what? We'd have been better off right back where we were. And he is, uh, he's not keeping his promises to us. And he has his, his expectations on us are unrealistic. God is expecting way too much out of us. This is where they were. And they said, our children are going to die out here. And suffer. And God finally says, You know what? The children whom you say are going to die out in this wilderness are going to enter the promised land. But you, your unbelief, they could not enter in, it's going to say, because of unbelief. Your unbelief is going to keep you out. And so unbelief would have to die in the wilderness. Their journey was supposed to be confident, joyful, and quick. But what stopped them? Chapter 3, 7 through, and it's a long section, 7 through 19, but it's kind of a poetic thing and then a few words of exhortation. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, which is really Psalms, it's kind of giving a Psalm style, beginning with a word from the Psalms. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, and tried me, and saw my works 40 years. See, God was testing them to bring a good purpose in their life, and they were testing and tempting God in rebellion and anger. And you saw my, they saw my works 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they've not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then we're told concerning this, <clears throat> Beware, brethren. Now, stop. You know, if I, uh, there's somebody here, there's a couple of you that have these cute little dogs, and I know your dog. It's a cute little dog. And if you put a big sign, Beware of the dog at your house, I would chuckle and laugh. I said, Well, you know, maybe I should tape my ankles up, you know, <laughs> because you got these little dogs, okay, and they're fine. But you know, on the other hand, if you go somewhere you don't know, and you see a big sign, beware of the dog. If you go to Lake, South Lake Tahoe, California, where I spent a couple of years, and uh, running in the middle of the night 
on snowpack. You know, you just hear your footsteps and your breathing, and there's everybody's got a fence, a high fence, a solid fence. And behind almost, I could say, South Lake Tahoe, California, has the highest concentration of big dogs that I've ever could imagine. I've been a lot of places. And as you run by, shaking this fence that's really a solid fence. Like, you're jumping across the street, and then the next one's, then you're bouncing between, like, you know they're behind the fence, but you don't know for sure that, you know, you're trusting that the fence is solid. But it, when it says, beware of the dog, what do you do? You beware. And when you see a sign that says, beware, you be, that's why it's there, so you'll beware. And I don't care that I'm rhyming. So, beware. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. See, going backwards isn't just you got tempted. It isn't just that you had trouble. Because people do get tempted and people do have trouble. But there's also a turning. And, and, and the heart of unbelief, it's, we've all had it. This doesn't mean like, well, you're doomed if you ever make a mistake or turn back at all or do anything wrong. He's warning us against the negatives and the problem of unbelief. It's not just a casual thing to not believe God, especially when he's done so much. How many miracles are enough? Well, just like the rich man, a Rockefeller, whoever, how much money is enough? One more dollar. How, much, how many miracles are enough? The next one. One more. One more. You see, God did miracles the day I was saved. Some of you know my story and the extreme miracles. They were pretty extreme. When I tell my story, people say, wow, that was extreme. So I go, okay, I had extreme miracles. And I've had miracles since then. But man, would I be in trouble if I lived on miracle after miracle after miracle? Pretty soon, life is going to get me down. Temptation is going to come. And God is not obligated to perform the my magic act miracle that I want him to do to keep me going. The miracle that I have is that he saved me and dropped me out of darkness, rescued the soul of this man. That's the miracle of miracles. And I do want miracles, and I do believe in miracles. But you can't feed off them any more than you can feed only off emotion. If you feed off of just emotion and miracles, you're in deep, deep, deep trouble. Now, he says, you know, beware. Lest there be an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But it, it wasn't because they didn't see him work. There was something else going on inside of them. They were unwilling to trust him. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest there be in any of you hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, right now, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not with those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those whose sin and whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter in his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. The one reason they weren't able to experience God's blessing was that they would not believe him. That is certainly not to say that if you just trust God, everything you want will happen. That isn't what it's talking about. But to believe God is to enter into his finished work and his rest. The only giant that can really ruin you is your own heart. You know, their, their unbelief would not be answered by more time or more miracles. The unbelief had to die. The unbelief had to die, represented in the actual generation over 20 years old. That you, people from 20 and up would die in the wilderness, and then the, un, the young people that they said wouldn't make it would go in. So imagine you're 19 years old. You're in the wilderness, and your parents are part of this group. Oh, Mom and Dad, you blew it so... Look what you've done to me. <laughs> I was 19. I was ready to go on the promised land, you know? All you old people got scared. All you old people said, no, we won't go. And, somebody, and now I have to spend the prime of my life from 20 years old to 40, from 19 to 39. Is that right? Is that No, 60. 
It's worse. It's waste. <laughs> it's worse. My whole life, my whole life, I'm, what if you were 19? Do you think there was any 19-year-olds there? 18-year-olds? Be hard to forgive your parents. Because, like, instead of you going into the promised land, you spend your whole life in the wilderness. But they could live long. Remember, remember Caleb and Joshua got okay, and Caleb was 80 years old and said, hey, I'm as strong as the day we came out of Egypt. Give me, give me the giants. So it didn't mean you couldn't be blessed and have a nice further life. But you had to spend 40 years suffering for somebody else's unbelief. Your own family. Wow. So, you know, their unbelief could not be answered by more miracles or more time. They had seen it all more than you'll ever dream of in your lifetime. Every single day, every single day, their life was a miracle. So, chapter 4 goes on to say, and we won't read it, that there remains a rest for God's people, and rest does not mean inactivity here. The rest of God doesn't mean, for you younger people, like us older people sitting in a recliner sipping iced tea or a hot cocoa, um, you know, watching the, you know, the History Channel or something, or the, what's the one with the house, the property house stuff, you know, the HG Channel or whatever. It's, it's so much more. It's, it's not inactivity. It's joyful, energized activity. Do you know when you're doing something you really love, you feel like you have energy to go all day? When you're doing something you hate, you're tired before you start. Just think about it. So, can we avoid, the question is, can we avoid this evil heart of unbelief? Beware tells us that we can and that we should avoid it. And the first thing is, and they're not in the order that they were spoken, but they're in, kind of in that picture, kind of in that order. Hold tight your confidence and rejoicing of hope. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, and it also talks about in other places in Hebrews about the rejoicing of hope. Well, okay, Rick, that's great. When you're number one, you know, how to, how to avoid an evil heart of unbelief is hold on to the confidence. Don't drift. But how do you do that? Well, number two is hear his voice. Today, if you will hear his voice, I want to take a minute on this. Hearing his voice isn't necessarily just having a prayer time, though that would certainly be a part of it to talk to God and listen to God. But to talk to God and listen to God, you've also been given communication with his word. You know, you don't just read the Bible, you can pray read the Bible. You can read and talk to the Lord about what you're reading. Either I don't understand that, or I have trouble believing that. I don't get that. I don't like that. I do like that. I don't see it happening in my life. Lord, how does this apply to me? What can I do with it? And stopping and thinking and praying and letting the Lord speak to you. You know, it's not a speed reading contest. How many chapters did you read today? Well, I'm a better Christian because I read three more chapters than you did. So what? But to actually take God's word in. But here's the real issue I want to bring. Hearing his voice today, believing in God, and I'm going to say something that you may think controversial or disagree with me. That's fine. Just let me say it and think about it. Believing in God is not enough. In fact, believing in God is almost just just generally believing in God almost means nothing. Case in point, James chapter 2. You believe in God? Great. The devils, the demons believe in God and they tremble. So what that you generically, generally speaking, believe in God? It doesn't change your life. It doesn't show dedication. It doesn't direct you. Believing God. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't believe in God. I'm suggesting believing in God as we understand it from the scripture includes believing God. Believe God. Believing God. His word. Our faith is not generic. Our faith is not general. Our faith is not vague. You know, I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. Well, good for you, but I bet there's some rain that drops and a flower doesn't grow. I lived in Arizona. <laughs> Actually, it turned into a flood. <laughs> no flowers. So where do you get that? Where do you get your philosophy of life? Where do you get, I believe, well, I, I just believe, blah, whatever it is you believe. What do you back it up with? 
Even observation is only partial because people will deal with life in a different way based on circumstances in their own hearts. But to believe God's word is to believe the promises. God has made specific promises, and we apply these promises directly. I have trouble. Trials, trouble, problems. I take God's specific promises in his word, which means I probably need to know some of them. I don't read the Bible to be a head knowledge guy or so I can preach. It'd be tough to preach without reading the Bible. Then it would just be, I believe, for every drop of rain that falls. Or even a better story and some cute acts here, you know. But I believe God's promises and I apply them. I make a sandwich. Here's this piece of bread, this piece of bread. This is my problem. This is God's word. I apply it to my problem. That's faith. That's faith. I'm not saying... By, by 2 o'clock today, everybody needs to be perfect at this, but if you're not, which direction are you going? Which way are you going? Is this getting stronger for you or weaker for you? Are you losing contact with God's word and just kind of becoming generic and letting your friends and the TV and the culture tell you how to think about stuff? If you haven't been applying God's word to your problems, you're not getting God's answer to your problems. And you can pray all day. But you're not believing him. My problem, God's word. It says nothing about emotion. We're going to talk about emotions. They're real and we have to deal with them. And that's okay. But it doesn't say anything about emotion. It talks about taking what's going on and taking God's word and applying it. Okay? Troubles, emotions. And decisions. It's the same. Emotions, decisions, all troubles. There's going to be times of weeping and sorrow. We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. There are times where we're suffering and we need people to stand with us and comfort us and not just tell us to believe God and shut up. Okay? But at the same time, I'm talking about how's the perpetual state of your life? How's the ongoing process in your life? Are you continuously going through the wilderness? Or are you actually headed towards the promised land? Are you stepping into the promised land? Okay. So it started when you left Egypt. I want to show you how it works. Look at The best I can do to me is the most basic truth and reality is I believe God. I don't just believe in God. I believe God. And, and when they left Egypt, they believed God, but then they stopped believing God. And when they went through the Red Sea, they had to believe God right then. <laughs> you know? And they were saved. They were delivered from Egypt. Those Egyptians you see are never going to come you, get you again. You know. So December 31st, 1971, I'm saved. I know I'm saved. Miracles happened for two weeks that were so dramatic that most people are, a lot of people tell me they wish they had those kind of miracles. Miracles. I still resisted even with miracles because I was just a hard-hearted, stubborn punk. No glory to me because God had to do so many miracles. just shows you how stubborn and stupid I was. He's just kind. He's just kind. I'm nothing because God did miracles. It just proves my need. And I came to him, and he did miracles after I came to him. And I knew I was saved, and my life changed dramatically. And then, you know, lo and behold, a little while later, something happened to me that happens to 99.99% of the Christians I know. And if you're in the 0.001%, you get a free coffee at Dunkin' Donuts today. But you're not like, you, there you are different. Now you're different. It's the only way you'd be different. Is I'm on the journey, and all of a sudden it's like, I don't feel saved. <laughs> I wonder if I really am saved. I don't know if I'm really saved. Was I saved then on December 31st, or was I not saved? Maybe I wasn't saved. Maybe I thought I was saved. Maybe I'm just believing this. Maybe God's forsaken me because I blew it over here and did this and that. Okay, what do you do about that? Well, some people believe that you have to go to the altar and get saved and get born again, 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 again. Every single time you feel bad and feel distant from God, you need to get born again, again. I don't think so. The Bible doesn't teach that. Bible says, okay, I know that I had this issue that I got saved. I, Jesus said in John, 1 John um, 1, 9, if we confess our sins, just to give you one verse, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
I did confess my sins. I believed that God, I knew Jesus was with me right then, and I confessed my sins, and I believed that he died on the cross for me. I am saved because I was saved on that day. And I know it, not because I feel it. If you have to feel saved every day, have a lot of fun there, boy. I feel saved. I feel lost. I feel, I think I'm saved because I feel good. I think I'm not saved because I feel bad. You couldn't get more basic than salvation to this issue of feeling saved or not feeling saved. Let me ask you, is the feeling of not feeling saved a real feeling? It's a real feeling. I don't tell people, oh, don't feel that way. It's kind of a stupid thing to say. Like, oh, my thumb hurts. Well, don't have your thumb hurt. I'm not, I don't try to correct people's feelings or my own anymore for the most part. I correct my thinking and my choosing and my faith. And I apply it to my feelings. Your feelings aren't God. They're pretty big. For some of you, they're everything. How you feel, for whatever reason that's happened to you, but don't think up here is sitting somebody who has no idea what he's talking about. Because when I was, I came from a neurotic, I love my Jewish brethren and not all of them are like this, but I came from a neurotic Jewish family. <laughs> and if it wasn't my grandmother, it was my mother or my aunt or my sister or my brother or me. I mean, when I was 17, my mom's saying, Ricky, you've got to calm down. You're going to make yourself sick. I was so uptight at all my friends for not following through on this plan we had that I was just raving mad and frustrated and just always getting worked up. I came from a very emotional family. I still have strong emotions. I don't worship them. What I feel is everything. That's not, I want to tell you something. It's hard for some of you, but that's not true. That's just not true. It's everything to you in your feelings but it's not true. It's real, and it may be attached to some great pain in your life, and we should respect that struggle and journey, but we ought not to pull the rug out from under you and say, yeah, it could take years and years of counseling to get free of that. You may never get free of that. You may have a battle your whole life. We all have some battles that last our whole lives. You know, because none of us has walked perfectly and we kind of get tweaked a little bit. And, you know, I know God heals. There's some things he took from me the day I was saved. I, I was a daily habit of marijuana. It was gone the day I was saved. No, it smelled just like burnt rubber to me now. And it was everywhere in the 70s. You need to walk around and, oh, it's marijuana. Wow, I loved that. He didn't take a lot of my other weaknesses and flaws away. He tested me and is testing me and proving me and causing me to hunger, right, so that I might seek after him. Is the goal to have everything just go away or is the goal for you to walk forward? Because if your goal is to have everything to go away, again, you're in deep trouble because there's no guarantee that it'll just go away. There is a guarantee that he will keep you and strengthen you and help you deal with it. And I'm not mocking the pain that's attached to emotion. I'm saying there is a victory over letting that be controlling your entire life. And there has to be. And so, I, you know, whether it's I'm not saved, I can't believe that God forgives me for what I just did, I can't believe this will ever work out in my life, or I can't forgive this person. You see, I used to go, and in conversations with several people this week, I realized that this is something God had really worked in my life, is that I, I had things like everybody does that were just seemingly impossible to forgive. And, you know, or you were okay. I, I, don't, I haven't had the worst time that some of you have had. Don't misunderstand me. But I've had things that were painful. And I said, okay, Most, mostly this process that everybody has. The process is, okay, Lord, I know I'm supposed to forgive him. I forgive him in the name of Jesus. You go along for a few days, maybe feeling pretty good, and then you, know, you get a phone call, you see a piece of paper or something, and it's a trigger. The per- you may talk to the person, and they'll say something stupid or something that goes back to that or whatever, and all of a sudden it's right there again, right? Right there. I mean, things like that. I can remember 
Uh, my dad's been gone since I was 15, year old, 15 years old, but if I sit and think about the day my dad died, I'll, I'll recount and I'll recover all those emotions and I'll feel them right now. That's emotion. There are sometimes it's good to go back and feel an emotion, and sometimes you have to counter that. Sometimes you have to say, well, that's not good for me to dwell on that. But what we normally do is we go, something comes up, we go, oh, see, I knew it. I can't forgive them. I'll never forgive them. Why can't I forgive them? This is so common to us, isn't it? Why am I not changing? Why can't I forgive? And I want to counter you on that, and you don't have to agree with me. I, I learned, I felt like, you know, today if you hear his voice, Rick, how long are you going to ask me to give you what I've already given you? I've already given you forgiveness for them. You claimed it, you chose it on that day. And the fact that your emotion rises up doesn't mean that's, you don't, you don't have to follow that emotion. But what do I do? Reject it. Reject it. And I use that word. You can use whatever words. You can do your own process with the Lord. I'm not God here. But my process is, I know where this emotion's coming from. I already forgave that. I don't have to sit here and go, why do I still feel this way? Why do I still feel this way? Because I'm thinking about it. And if I think about it, I'll feel it. Because I'm learning to get over my feelings. And the way I learn to get over my feelings is to choose to reject them. When they're not right, I reject them. I haven't gotten there perfect. But on this one, it's pretty straightforward. Lord, I know, and I claim it. I go, three weeks ago on Tuesday, or June 27th, I forgave that person. So I reject these emotions because they're trying to take me backward to that, and I've already forgiven it. So I learned to stop asking the Lord to help me forgive. Help me forgive. Help me forgive. Help me forgive. There's a time to ask the Lord that. You get to be who you are, and that may be very common to you. So what right do I have to say that? Well, here's the reasons to help you. Is if you are saying, help me forgive over and over and over about the same situation, then, then I have something to say to you right now. That's the wrong question. That's the wrong request. It's not helping you, and it's not because God's against you. He wants you to stand on the promise that if you forgive in my name, it's done. You can take it to the cross. I already t- placed that on the cross. That sin they did against me is at the cross at, on Jesus, just like my sin. I have to do it about my own failure. I have failed many times in my life. Some of them, if I think about my failures, the pain becomes very great. And I could be immobilized because I have failed people I love. Have you? I wanted to do the right. How about even when you're trying, not you're not trying to say who cares and you're in a bad attitude. You're trying to do the right thing. Some of my biggest failures were not out of callousness. I was trying to do the right thing, but I was confused and I was struggling, and that causes me more pain than anything I've ever done callously. And if I dwell on that, I'm completely bottled up and stuck just like some of you, because we're more alike than we are different. But when I say, you know what, I know where that's coming from. You know, there's a saying goes, you can't stop the birds from flying around the tree, but you can keep them from building a nest. Sometimes you have to get out there with a broom in the West Coast, I would say, but here I'd say with a roof rake, a snow rake. They're even longer. And you just, you know, well, how long do you do that? Well, you're going to do something. Every time an emotion comes up, you're going to do something with it. Stay with me here. This might be challenging to even listen to, but this will help you. You do something with your emotions when they come up anyway. Some of you... You spend all your time burying them back. No, I don't really feel that way. No, I don't really feel that way. No, I don't really feel that way. That is not good. You do feel that way. <laughs> I don't tell the Lord I don't really feel that way. Yeah, I do feel that way. But this is yours, and also you paid for it on the cross, and also I gave that to you then, so I reject this feeling it does not have to control me. You say, well, I can't do that. Well, you're doing something. What are you doing? I feel this way. I can't stop feeling this way. I feel this way. Why won't you change me? Why won't you free me? I'll never be free. You're doing that every time. (laughs) You're doing that every single time. So why don't you do something different? And if you have to do it, 
50 times in a row in one day, you don't have anything better to do. Then say, Lord, I reject this feeling. I know that you're going to take me past it. I believe your word. You're not faking it. You're faithing it. You're not faking it. You're faithing it. You're applying God's word. And, of course, then learning different scriptures that teach you about that subject is going to help do that. And I could, I know, too much, go on for an hour, but I hardly meet anybody that isn't struggling with their emotions. And it's okay. And we're not saying you don't really feel it. But your feelings, some people, as soon as they feel something, feel that they have to bring a gift to it at the altar and worship that emotion. And you do not have to do that. You have to deal with it, but you don't have to worship it. And you'll have to claim, whether you use the word reject, I reject that emotion. You know. So worship God, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, in heart and soul are your emotions. You worship God with your emotions. You present them to him and let them be his. And you choose that. If you have to choose it painfully, you do it painfully because your alternative is to stay right where you are, going in circles, never changing, saying, God, help me. So waiting till you feel it won't work. But there's a third thing. Not just hold tight your confidence. How? By hearing his voice, by taking his word and applying it to your situation. But is that it, Rick? Does that just work all the time? Well, we struggle, don't we? Even if you agree with me, even if you've been through this process, life can be a struggle. The third thing he said was, but exhort one another daily while it's today. This won't take long. Exhort one another daily. Means encourage, come alongside to help. Like it comes from the word paracleo. Paracleo is the word we get paracletus from. It's the word we get Holy Spirit comforter. The word comforter, not Holy Spirit, but comforter. Uh, exhort one another. It doesn't mean beat people up. You know, shame on you. How dare you not trust God? You know, but it's like, hey, listen, come alongside and encourage and help and give instruction. You and I need, we need to beware of the signs. We need to beware of drifting. We need to beware of, of going backwards. Don't you want to go forward? You want to do it with everything else in your life. Why? What would cause you to not want to go forward with Jesus? There's a battle for that one. It's bigger than for going back to school. It's bigger than for saving money. It's bigger for getting that girl or that guy you really, really wanted. It's really bigger. And there's a battle on that one. There's a battle for your soul. So we need each other to come alongside and help. You don't need to just hear a study like this. You need people in your life because sometimes you need to express your frustration and your emotion. And you need somebody who you trust will listen to you. Not just to say, poor baby, I don't know why God's so mean to you. I don't get it either. But somebody who will listen to you, care about you, and be able to pray with you and encourage you of how to trust the Lord. You need that. I need that. We need that. But... The picture that I have that's so clear on that is there was a, and this is a true story. The Sierra Nevada mountains in California and Nevada are similar to the Adirondacks. They're not quite as rugged, but they get really cold and they get storms when they don't expect them. Like we can get a late spring storm up in the Adirondacks or even in Saratoga Springs. <laughs> you know, nowadays they tell you everything before it happens. Pretty good, but uh, not everything. Back years ago, a guy goes out in the late spring on a, ja- a lightweight jacket, and he's going hiking up in the Sierra Nevadas for a day hike. He doesn't know it, but the weather is turning severe, so severe that he's way at the top, and it starts to, the clouds over, it starts snowing, the temperature drops dramatically, like it can do in the Adirondacks. And this guy's lost. I mean, he can't go back on his tracks because it's snowing so hard, like five inches an hour, like that one December... We had a Christmas Eve years ago since I've been here. Never seen snow like that, five inches an hour for three hours. You can't snowplow fast enough. And you sure can't go back on your tracks. And you sure can't tell where you came from because of the snow piling up. And guess what? He gets lost. And he's circling and he's walking. He's trying to go down the mountain, but he can't find the path. He can't find a way down. It's pretty rugged up there. And he's getting tired and he's getting hypothermia. And he knows he's a hiker. He knows if I sit down and just give in to this cold, that's it. I'll just freeze to death. 
But, you know, eventually he just gets so tired and so disoriented and so empty feeling and hopeless that he just plops down next to a tree. And he puts his hand down in the snow and he feels something in the snow, soft and different than ground or a limb. And he digs out, there's a guy, also lightly dressed, another idiot, (laughs) who didn't think before he went up in the mountains, you know, by himself, I guess. You know, that's what he said. Like, oh, I can't believe another guy like me. But this guy's in worse shape. He's not dead. He listens. Guy has a heartbeat, but he's freezing out there. And he's covered in snow. And the guy, you know, he does what most people would do. Most people don't go, yeah, I'm joining you too, buddy. I'll just lay here and die next to you. That, no matter, most people, most people would actually be motivated by that. He was. Not all people. He was, he goes, oh, this guy's out here dying. And he just, suddenly in his mind, he goes, i got to try to save this guy. So he digs the guy out and he puts him on his shoulders and he starts hiking. Well, first of all, that keeps you warmer, you know, builds up your, you know, your warmth. He's got adrenaline rushing. But actually, the most important thing is within a few hundred yards, he actually comes upon a little cabin with a light on and smoke coming out of the stack, and they're both saved. You know, Sindar Singh is a guy that was in the Himalaya Mountains, a Christian, in the midst of all the Buddhism and the Hinduism, and he um, had the same experience with a, with a guide picking up a hiker, who, or a person who had gotten hurt. And the guide says, you know what, a storm's coming. I've been in these mountains all my life, and we will die if you slow down to pick this guy up. And he goes... Well, you go ahead, but I'm going to help this guy. He put the guy on his back. That kept him warm. He hiked down the mountain, and he finds the guide frozen later. It was a long ways up the mountains where they were. So you see, is this what Jesus meant when he said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it? Is this what Jesus meant when he said, give and it shall be given to you. Good measure pressed down and bubbling over shall men give into your heart and to your soul uh, for with the same measure you give out, it will be given back to you. Think about how much attention you give to your emotions. You give to them. You jump into them, right? I mean, it's kind of how we're built in the flesh, in our sinful fallen state. What if you give to the Spirit and to God's Word and cover that thing in His Word? What if you give to being with your brethren this year? And actually saying, you know, things aren't getting easier, they're getting harder, so I'm going to get more dedicated to being with the body of Christ, to being in God's word, to applying his word to my life. I don't know what's going to, we don't know with certainty what this year will bring. We know that Jesus is coming soon, and it's sooner than when we first believed, the Bible says, which makes sense, because we're really only going one direction. The Hebrew believers were starting to go backwards. Some people start to go backwards, it happens. But you can turn around. You can turn around. Because the whole direction is still only going one direction for everybody to meet the Lord. So we're all going in the same direction on that. And whatever comes, we know this. He has said, here's, here's my problem. I feel like God's abandoned me. I feel alone. I feel like everything I've tried to serve him and do has just turned into dust and rejection. I think people really have that, and I appreciate that's a very difficult challenge. But here's what God's word says. For he has said, and later in the book of Hebrews, quoting from the Old Testament, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Okay. At some point, you either believe that, or you don't. Keep it simple. Don't complicate it because of your feelings. The question is, do you believe it? I will never leave you or forsake you. I have felt that God had left me alone with my emotion. I have felt that deeply. And at those times, because, you know, you won't maybe be in the same place as every other people. It depends where you start. You've got to start somewhere. Start where you are. <laughs> That's the only place you can start. But I know that God has taught me to the point I'm at that no matter how much I feel alone, abandoned, or forsaken, he said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. And I don't wait till I emotionally feel it. Oh, I'm feeling it now. Okay, now I believe. I don't wait for that. 
I choose it right now. And I may have to fight my feelings and keep applying it. But I have nothing better to do than believe God's word. He has said, I will never leave you. I will not leave you. I'm not going anywhere. You may decide to turn back for a while. But I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. I already paid for you. And I'm not taking it back. And I vote for Jesus.